Welcome to No Time to Waste, the podcast that inspires and motivates us to maximize our moments. I'm your host, Allison Haddon. I'm battling terminal cancer, but I'm focused on living my best life as my best self every day. Join me as I chat with resilient adventurers, seekers, trailblazers, and exceptionally good humans as we explore what it means to live fully, because there's no time to waste for all of us. It all started in musical theater camp in Upper Darby, Pennsylvania with Tina Fey. Yes, I'm dead serious. She directed me in the play. Chris Heisler and I spent our middle school summers basically as unpaid child actors, but loving every second of it, basking in the glow of all-day rehearsals, absolute freedom, and Dairy Queen, surrounded by a sea of fellow theater geeks just feeling so cool. Life took us down different roads, but over time, our identities as athletes emerged as the ones that fueled our souls. Chris scored a dream job as the Weston Global Run Concierge, while I sat in my corporate office dreaming of the day I'd find the time to be more than just a weekend warrior. Both hard-driving, high-achievers, we learned over time what can happen to self-centered people like us when that energy is channeled in the wrong direction, and we both ran into substance abuse challenges as adults. But now, like a perfectly timed TV drama crossover starring two washed-up 40-year-olds, we find our storylines intertwined again, both sober, both on new paths, both still pining for those sweet, simple summers when we thought we had it all. Here's Chris Heisler for No Time to Waste. Okay, we are here with none other than Chris Heisler, my long lost, not even really friends when we were younger, buddy from, uh, I don't even know how we begin. I summer mean, stage, come on, Upper Derby summer stage, the, uh, the school of Austin Tina Fey, remember? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And I feel like you, if you read her book, Bossy Pants, um, or if you even watch freaking 30 Rock, she like always does flashbacks and like has a whole chapter in her book that basically is summer stage. And like people are like, okay, so you went to like musical theater camp when you were little, which for like people like you and I, who were more defined by sports as we became adults, it, at least for me, like blows people away when they go, wait, what you went to? And I was like, I fucking loved, yeah. I loved music. I love musical theater. I like, that was the jam. And you were the stud muffin. Wow. Stud muffin of like, I think I was probably 12. I mean, it was middle school for sure. Yeah. I, I don't, you know, recall being the stud muffin. I recall <laughs> being, um, we, I just, I was there for hours. I was just telling my kids this, like for summer camp, I would get dropped off at nine, do like rehearsals till five. Yep. And then I was in the main stage production that one year of Sound of Music. And then I'd stay till 10 and yeah. I could have stayed, I could have slept there. Totally. Was I was immersed in that culture and I fell in love with it. It's really, I, I learned so much in that place. It was, I mean, and again, for people that don't understand it, this was not a small operation. You can look it up, Summer Stage, Upper Darby. It's suburban Philadelphia. It's literally the hometown of uh, Tina Fey. She, did she direct you in a play? I never got to work with Tina Fey. Oh, I got to work with Tina Fey. Uh, yeah, okay, all right. But no, I told you, it was the, like, the denouement after my rise to fame very quickly at summer stage with my starring role of Sally in Snoopy, which I won a best supporting actress award for. And then my next, um, my next show 
which was directed by Tina Fey, I got cast as Chorus in Tall Tales. So let's just say I don't have like a great association with her. So this was an eight week, one of the like the biggest and most robust children's theater programs in the country, where for eight weeks every summer, they take hundreds of kids and they put on literally eight weeks, eight different productions, Monday through Friday of one show. And then the next week, Monday through Friday, it's a freaking amazing business idea because you're collecting money from all of the kids. The parents love it because as you said, they drop the kids off. I got dropped off at nine in the morning and got picked up at four or five o'clock. And it was like the boarding school musical theater nerd dream that I was like living and oh my God. And I, we would go to Burger King for lunch and like Dairy Queen. DQ was right there. Like, I mean, I had several entrepreneurial ventures over the course of multiple summers. I was making bracelets and necklaces and selling them to people. Like I always had a side hustle. There were clicks. You got to like, you had no supervision. And for, you know, I went to Catholic school at that point. I went to Holy Child in Drexel Hill, which is a really small private Catholic school. We weren't, we did not have freedom to like roam, quote, campus, or we were not at a public school. I couldn't just leave. But then the summer came and it was like, I own this town. But basically, it was like all of my dreams wrapped up into one. And you and I, I think, talked about this, but like it, it was a place where I think nerds, specifically like theater geeks at a young age who probably didn't feel like they belonged in sort of their mainstream middle school environments could go and be cool and be around all these other people and finally be in like the mainstream of this subculture which was, I think, super empowering from like a confidence standpoint. As a parent, I would I would love to see one or both of my kids have that opportunity in a summer because it teaches you public speaking, getting comfortable in your own skin, imagination 101. I mean, mm-hmm. this is three screens, so we're not communicating over phones. Uh, it, I look back with the most fond memories of those those summers there, for sure. Talk to me about your transition from musical theater geek and i say that with the utmost respect and admiration um to runner and athlete uh, fair enough yeah when i went to so i went to L- la right after college i went to Penn right. state moved to la was going to go for a week and then come back and i was fortunate enough to get an agent pretty quickly so i just i lived on my uh, cousin's couch yeah um and then when i was out there I went through probably what a lot, a lot of actors go through. I felt like I had to lose some pounds, um, which really in, in hindsight is completely ridiculous. But um, so I started running. I mean, I ran in college, but then in LA, I probably became a little obsessive about it. Okay. I lived in Hermosa Beach. So I'd run the Strand all the time or the Green Trail. Um, and I didn't, I was a brand new runner, so I had no idea what I was doing, but I liked it. I liked how it made me feel. It was an opportunity yeah. to like run through demons. I got a lot of no's in LA. Like, no, you're yeah. not this enough. You're not this enough. So running was a really great escape for me. And then when I moved to New York to pursue acting there, I uh, continued running, met my now wife and I kept getting really close on these parts and I just, it, it broke my back. And huh. she just said, you know, if, 
if you're not going to pursue acting, that's your call. But why don't you go pursue something you love? So you love running. And that's when I applied for a job at Equinox down in Tribeca uh, with a running background. And I said, I love to be able to learn how to coach and the technique and the strength that that supports running. And that was it. Once I fell into that world, I loved it. I loved working with athletes. I loved watching people go after goals and then setting new goals for myself. And I think I go back to the acting stuff. I mean, by becoming an actor, you can identify with this. Like you learn how to react and emote with people and listen to people. And coaching is not just about writing the best program. It's about how can you get somebody to do what you see in them? So my strength as a coach was by no means writing the best program. I worked with a lot of other trainers who were savants and really technical in the programming. They struggle with getting the clients to do it. And that's where I would like to play the emotional side. Like how, how can you get somebody to buy into your program as a coach? And that's what I learned. And that's what I fell in love with. Well, that's like the art of persuasion, right? Like, so I took a path where I started in Mm -hmm. sales in my 20s and worked in tech. And I learned that my acting abilities were really critical to my success in sales, right? My ability to connect with people emotionally, to strategically sort of set them up, um, to be able to um, empathize with them. And then also my comfort level with fucking riffing on the fly. Like that's all improv. And right. Yes. And it's yes. And it's, it's improv 101. And as I grew in my career as an executive, a lot of my public speaking abilities, right? A lot of my comfort level on stage, my ability to MC and keynote stuff. And it's still the same. I still get the same rush when I'm on stage now, but my comfort level with all of that absolutely was my foundation in acting as a kid. Um, And I just, it's one of those things where I'm just like, I think to your point, what you were talking about summer stage and, you know, would loving to see your kids in it because what it provides, I think, I think there are a lot of professions where, acting abilities and that comfort level is kind of what differentiates those people from those that have great technique, but just aren't comfortable in that kind of an environment. Yeah. I mean, acting is about, can you make somebody feel something? That's it. If you're on stage, can you make the audience feel? That's that's it. So take me to the opportunity with Weston that emerged as a result of, or after, after Equinox. Well, yet again, yet again, my wife is the push here. So she saw a post on Facebook, like this runner's dream job. Um, this person would travel and work for Weston and become like this quote unquote run concierge. It was a six month job. I thought it was a PR stunt. And she's like, well, just apply. Like, what's the worst that can happen? Um, so I put an application. Uh, there was like 1,100 people. And then it went from 1,100 to 10 to 5 to 3 to 1. And then I got it. Um, having acting and editing background helped. Yep understanding how to talk to people on camera helped. And then that became about yep. a seven year job, which put me on the road over a hundred thousand miles a year, all across the U S every other weekend to a different race, a different city. Um, thousands that I've met so many runners and so many just frankly, amazing people. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I know where you're going with this. So yeah, at least I think I do, um, travel. I didn't know at the time is the loneliest uh, existence there is um, if you're not emotionally and spiritually sound and I, I was not so and I also you know uh, totally 
you know, you're flying, I'm flying on these planes and I'm staying in these gorgeous hotels and I work for the hotel. So I'm getting these beautiful suites. I get in, there's so many different gifts. It was unbelievable. It was an unbelievable situation. And I did not take it for granted. But wow. then little by little, uh, what started to happen was my sort of reliance on the substance of beer, alcohol in it took over. Um, I, you know, I, would, I don't say took yeah. over, but it didn't allow me to perform yeah. as well as I would want to in anything else in my life. So there was an, uh, an obsession in my brain. So get to the airport, going to get a drink. Get on the plane, going to get a drink. Get to a hotel, going to get a drink. And here I am as this wellness expert. Uh, and it, it was a quite a, I felt like a hypocrite. Um, mm -hmm. I talked to people who were asking for advice on how to take care of themselves. And yeah, I couldn't even take care of myself. And I can imagine, I think we talked about this before, but like, right, to kind of the untrained eye or to someone who is not um, adept or high functioning, um, to look at someone who's running seven plus miles every morning, um, no matter what, in whatever time zone, whatever country, um, to go, well, there's no way that like someone like that could have like a drinking problem and then go and run like that in the morning. I think alcoholism is often quantified by how much somebody is drinking. And I think what's missing is there is how much somebody is thinking about drinking. Thinking about it. The percentage, if you think of a pie chart in your brain, how much yeah. space is that obsession with that next drink taking? And it could, yeah. it might only be two drinks, like it might, right? But it's like, and all yeah, that does those two drinks, is distract you from um, the present, it might, right? Yeah, it's not usually two. Which it's not, it's not usually, let's like, be honest, it's not usually How much two. am I thinking about those drinks? <laughs> it goes in my head, am I going to have three? Am I going to have four? How much am I going to have tonight? And mm -hmm. then this control thing comes in. You know, Rachel, my yep. wife and I would joke after I got sober to like help her understand what it, how it looks mm -hmm. and feels to me as an alcoholic. Like if I have a drink, I know where it is all the time. I never forget where my drink is in any room in any bar. That is, that's my holy grail in wherever I am. Totally. She would forget where her drink is all the time. Like she, like she leave a half and she doesn't drink. Half what glass, you live, and you'd done? look at that. Like, you'd look at the glass, going, what, "Why aren't you gonna finish? Who leaves fucking half a glass?" Uh, yeah. So, by the way, for anyone listening right now, just to pause. If this shit that Chris and I are saying sounds absolutely crazy, you're probably not struggling with an alcohol problem. You probably are a normal drinker that has a healthy relationship with alcohol and could take it or leave it depending on the situation, especially if you started to experience negative consequences that impacted the relationships that are most important to you. So for those that don't know, because I haven't talked about this publicly, um, you know, I haven't had a drink in it will be 13 years in January. Um, Hell yeah. uh, I did have a couple years before that. I got sober the first time when I was uh, pretty much about a year out of college. You know, it was all of this, like, just moderate it, just, and the, what I realized um, over time and being in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I personally credit to giving me a foundation that helped me recover from my relapse later, um, was, you know, it's not, uh, when I control it, uh, I don't enjoy it. And when I enjoy it, I'm not controlling it. Um, I ended up completely blowing up my life, um, which is something I've never talked about publicly because for professional reasons, I always wanted to keep it kind of hidden. But um, in uh, December 26th, 
in Upper Darby, which we were talking about as the home of Summer Stage. Um, I was 28 years old. At the beginning of that year in January of 2008, I told um, friends and family, I was very open about it. And I was like, hey, I'm 28. I was a kid. I didn't know what I was doing. I learned a lot from AA. I'm super connected still to people in the program. I've got my therapist. I really feel like I can handle a couple drinks. And again, if you've ever been in the rooms or you've been in recovery yourself, this is the same story that plays out over and over and over. But you hear someone go, I can handle it. It was a long time ago. I have terminal cancer now. Like, well, there's, a, there's any number of excuses that people would validate and vouch for, right? And I basically said, hey, I'm just going to give it a shot. I'm going to make sure that I'm, you know, communicating with everyone. I had my first drink uh, in January in the San Diego airport of 2008. Um, it was a, I'm embarrassed, but it was a giant Bud Light at like a kiosk at the San Diego airport. And um, fast forward 11 months later, it's December 26th. I go to a middle school reunion at the bar down the street from my parents' house. I drive home raging drunk. I start a four-car pileup. The first two cars in the four-car pileup that I start by just not putting on my brakes on my way to go get a Wawa freaking soft pretzel and a Diet Coke, they're cop cars. So I injure a cop. I end up uh, also getting charged with possession because they find a bag, little baggie with some residue in it. And I spend 20, 2009 trying to rework what I thought was like, I'm going to go to prison for a really long time. And long story short, it did get worked out. I did lose my license. I did have it on my record for 10 years. It's still there, I think, because there was a delay. But I've been sober ever since. Um, but I say that only because my story is no different from anybody else's that you hear um, who have identified themselves as someone that I, I don't care about anybody else. I just know that I can't. When alcohol's in my life, we're at like a 99% threshold of the space it's taking up in my head. And especially now that I am dealing with this terminal situation and I'm trying to maximize my moments, there's nothing that will disconnect me more from the present and the people I love than if I introduce drinking back into my life, regardless of whether or not I could control it. And even if I could, I'd enjoy it. You know, I wonder that about, you know, if I was ever given a diagnosis like the one you got, would my brain just say, F it, I deserve whatever the hell I want right now? Or am I strong enough? Is, is my foundation strong enough? It's like, no, my life is better without it. Um, so I, I applaud you. That's, that's quite challenging. I think, uh, to be honest, I think it's time. I think it's just, you know, again, I, I was thrown back into the, uh, my pro a very rigorous program of recovery after that huge misstep that year and that accident and went to intensive outpatient rehab and a lot of therapy. And, um, you know, for me, like I still obsessed over, couldn't I just, if I could just like, you just want to bargain with it. I just had a really, I have a really tough time accepting things I can't control. 
right? And so with my sobriety, I really struggled to accept the fact that other people may look the same as you in how they drink, but you know that drinking is just not good for you, period, and bad things will happen. Um, And what I also have heard from other people in my life who knew me sober for years and always said, it'd be so fun to get drunk with you. And then they did. <laughs> and then it was like a ha- then it was like six months or 11 months later. And they'd be like, yeah, so now <laughs> we don't actually want to be around you when you're drinking anymore because you're the worst. Um, so I'm not even fun. So when if anyone is basically now like, I wouldn't mind if you like we got drunk together, I'd be like, here's a list of a couple names. And I looked and I'm sure you did, too. I looked fitter. And I was driving my dream car and I was making really good money for my age. And like, I was literally like, I just bought a leather jacket. Like what? So, you know, just because I looked quote healthy and successful and like the shit on the outside, that does not mean that I didn't, I wasn't wrestling with those demons every night to try and get this thing under control that I had freaking basically, you know, took the lid off of again. Well, I think that's a necessary call out. I mean, we we talk about mental health a lot these days, especially these days. And we, I think one of the greatest things I've learned by coming out as an alcoholic and recovery, we don't know what people are going through. Totally. We have no idea. Totally. And to make any type of assumption, um, it's just not, it's not compassionate. That's a great, that's a great, it's a great lesson, right? I mean, I, I sure. know. Look at you before this podcast, Allison. Yep. Add on with hair, and if yep. you're going grocery shopping around wherever you go grocery shopping, and somebody sees you, and who knows? They have no idea that what they're walking next to is somebody yep. who's battling terminal cancer. No idea. Yep. Zero. They might get agitated that you took their parking spot and say stupid stuff to you. Let's. This is everybody's on edge right now. Everybody, myself included. And I have to keep reminding myself of that fact, that there is an edge that we are out of control. We cannot control this coronavirus other than wearing a mask and doing our part. If we remember those things, maybe we can offer a little more grace to the people we come in contact with on a daily basis or the strangers that we see on a daily basis. But I think we owe it to ourselves as a culture to remember that. Yeah. No, I think it's a great lesson right now. I mean, that was what I wanted to talk about was like you know, you've, you've been through the ringer, right? You've come out the other side. Yes, I guess. So here's the thing. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to pull like time on you, but like time, I, I don't, I don't think you'll fight your, your quote bottom as Mm. time goes on. I agree. You know, let's, I'm a 41 year old white male and I've got some serious privilege in my life. So I just, I want to be a little bit respectful of Mm -hmm. Going through the ringer, like yeah, for me in my life, one hundred percent internally, at least, internally, right? Internally, yeah. so that's really no doubt, yeah, no doubt, yeah. Um, but there's been so much happening this year that has really that's a very good point pulled me back. When Ahmad Arbery got shot, right? I never left my house before that moment ever, and thought, what would it be like if I left my house as a black man? Right. What would right. that run look like? And then Ahmad Arbery got shot in Atlanta, and I'm like, or Georgia, and I'm like, holy crap. Yeah. Why have I never thought of that? And I've been in running for 20 years. And no one's ever stopped you, right? 
when no. it's dark to be like, what are you doing here? And you're like, I'm fucking running. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And there are these moments, no matter where we're coming into, that can give us pause and force reflection if we're at least open to it. Yep. And I can only be open to those moments if I'm sober. Because if I'm not sober, I'm only thinking about myself. Totally. That Look, alcoholism is a disease of self-centeredness. And I yep. know people hate to hear that. They're like, oh, Chris is this nice giving guy. Yes, and <laughs> I'm really self-centered. Totally. Like, that's how I'm wired. So I, I, it's embarrassing to admit, but I, I tell my wife- It's not. It's courageous and vulnerable and sure. like and true. Fair enough. But it's also humbling. And I will say it's embarrassing because I married a woman who puts the kids first, then me, then her. And I say, well, that's great. And she does it every day. Every morning I wake up and I think about me, then probably me again, then maybe I'll think about the kids, and then I'll go back to me and then I'll get to you. And every day I pray that I can reverse that order. That's the daily work of being having a disease of self-centeredness where alcohol is just the symptom of it. Totally. That that's the that's what we're taught. That's what I'm learning. And I am my eyes are opening. I see it for what it is. And I'm not going to say, oh, look at me. I'm a proud, self-centered guy. It's just calling out what it is. Right. And I'll do all I can to make sure that my decisions and how I live on a daily basis yep. ideally isn't always about me. Yeah. Which for an alcoholic, like that is a, as you said, it's a daily struggle. Yes. It's a daily struggle. But your perspective, Allison, I mean, when you reached out for the podcast, I was humbled. Uh, I think it's a privilege to talk to somebody in your situation. Um, you know, I mean, no time to waste is a pretty damn accurate statement. I think pr- time is the most precious commodity there is. We don't get this hour back. So if someone's listening to this and they finish and they're mad about it, that's on us. But um, your perspective on time, I think, is invaluable. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like the stuff I focus on with no time to waste, like the three things that I feel like I've whittled everything down to is like, fucking confront mortality, which is really, really hard as humans. We're just not wired. So as a result, we avoid the topic, Mm -hmm. right? Even though we know it's like the only universal inevitability. Um, I talk about crafting a life without regrets so that you can put your head down every night, take an inventory basically of your day and look back, which, and go, yeah, like I have, there is nothing I have left unsaid. There is nothing that I have, um, I have left out there. I I did everything I could today to be the person yeah. that I'm proud of, right? And these are the foundational things that I learned totally. getting sober. And then three, like maximizing moments by focusing on the only shit that matters, which is gratitude, human connection, relationships, and joy. Um, I'll take all four of those. You'll take, I agree yeah. with you. Um, yeah. I, you know, I could tell through the pandemic and losing my job and stuff that I was getting a little in the self-pity world, which is just... Yep. Um, I think self self pity is just a disguise for self centeredness. It means I'm only thinking about myself and I don't have enough. And the mm-hmm. cure to that is gratitude. So mm-hmm. I started um, texting another friend of mine. Uh, just every morning, you got to say something you're grateful for. Just yep. it gets me start on the right step, and it at least allows the opportunity to call out other moments throughout the day. Two nights ago, we're watching um, I think football, and and my ten year old son, he was exhausted. He had a long day at soccer, but he put his head on my shoulder, and I I. Those moments for me just put me in my place. I think a head on your shoulder as a parent, there's no greater sign of trust. Yeah. And I, I'm not thinking about getting up to get a beer. I'm not thinking about, am I going to knock over my drink because my son's head is on my shoulder? I'm able to sit there, receive it, receive his love, earn, and feel like I'm enough for that. 
Whereas if I'm drinking, I didn't have that. I didn't deserve that. So I got choked up that my 10 year old still trusts me enough to put his head on my shoulder. And I think there are moments on on it every day that have the capacity to do that to us. You just have, you have to work at it. Gratitude is an absolute practice. You can't just say it. You can't just say, I'm grateful. Well, you, you got to get in the habit of it back to that word to make it come to life. Yeah. I love that idea of having kind of like a gratitude accountability partner that you just text in the morning. Cause I, I typically have, and I'm showing Chris right now, but this is my gratitude jar yeah. that I got yeah. all fucking arts and craftsy with. There um, you go. And, you know, I keep it next to my bed usually, or I keep it here at my desk and I just throw in moments and I put a timestamp and a date on it. And I encourage people to get crafty, take an old shoebox, like start on your phone, a gratitude list and like not to overthink it but it's the moments that you talked about, right? Like it doesn't have to be the big things. It's more of the emotional connection to the moments that then the advantage to having either something digitally tracked if you've texted it, Mm -hmm. right? Or you put it in a note or you can actually take the old school way and literally dump out your jar once a week or once a month. And you then revisit all of those moments of gratitude. It like strengthens the fiber in your system that helps you re-experience it again. And as you said, gratitude, I believe, is the freaking antidote to a shitty mindset. Like, I believe that if you change your mindset, you change your life. Mm -hmm. And gratitude has been the fastest. And I like, I like shortcuts. I like fast action, fast acting stuff. And um, I have found that gratitude is the fastest way to get me out of the self-pity of my situation and into a positive headspace where I am all of a sudden focused on, let me reach out to that person because I know that her grandmother wasn't doing well. And let me, and like all of a sudden things shift and I start thinking about other people, mm-hmm. right? And I selfishly start to feel better mm-hmm. because as I learned, doing acts of service is actually like kind of like the most self-serving thing because it feels great. Yeah. Um, and so I love that. I love that, uh, that gratitude and that you just basically also hit on the connection piece, right. Yeah. With your son of, of being, um, being enough for yeah. him and feeling enough from him yeah. from the inside yeah. out to accept that love. You know, my aunt, uh, recently passed away and we knew she was in hospice and she was, uh, she had cancer and yeah. I brought Shane and Kiki, my two kids. We drove down to Philadelphia to see her one last time. Yep. And I said, why don't you guys write, do something, like make something for her. Yeah. And for a 10-year-old son, that's, that doesn't make a lot of sense. He's like, well, why I can't write, get well soon, which is 100% true. I said, you're right. Right. He's like, so what am I supposed to do? I said, why don't you draw pictures of what she loves? So he drew like the Eagles logo. He drew the Philadelphia logos. I was like, perfect. Yeah. Kiki, seven made her a pillow like she does knitting she made her a full-on pillow and shane said why would you make her a pillow if she can't use it that long and i said again shane these are really good questions yeah but the thing about aunt marcia is she doesn't have a lot of time so even those little moments that when we get into her room and we give her those gifts in that moment it's gonna mean that much more to her yeah and he got it when we went in the room and Kiki gives her her pillow. First thing she did was put the pillow under her back. She so used <laughs> it right away. 
and they he got it and it was this beautiful moment where time just slowed down yeah. and to see that as a seven or ten year old and the parent just to witness that those are 30 minutes that i am forever grateful for she passed four days after that wow and we got it we got our last time to say we love you and i think for him and for Kiki as well, you know, they don't get it as much as people like an older age do. Yeah. But, um, you know, it goes back like it, this time is precious. And yeah. if you know somebody's struggling, if there's not a time left, you got to get out of your own way and yeah. you got to think of somebody else. Yeah. I so appreciate you uh, already recognizing that time is the most precious commodity that we have. Right. I'm not to say that money makes life easier, period, right? But you can't buy health and you can't buy time. And if I could, I would, (laughs) Um, but I can't. And now it's about my time and it's about using that time wisely. And it's about creating a personal legacy and helping other people. And for anyone who just related to some of the stuff we talked about earlier, feel free to reach out to me directly if you've got questions about any of the stuff we talked about. Um, I would absolutely recommend AA to, you know, anyone, it's the, it costs nothing or a dollar. Um, There are meetings everywhere. There are meetings on Zoom that are going on all day, every day. Um, It's just, for me, it was a great place to hear other people that sounded like me when I was able to put the judgments of what they looked like or what their job was or whatever stuff I had, like you talked about with uh, the run program at Weston. Um, I think in the last probably 10 years, there's been an emergence and especially in the last two years of different, uh, basically like making sobriety fucking cool that it's not cool to just get wasted all the time and be a bad friend or drunk, you know, drink and drive and put people's lives at risk. They are creating now brands and they're creating programs that are virtual and in person that offer alternative ways to basically evaluate your drinking and like reestablish a different relationship with alcohol instead of a, you know, hard line of it's either yes or no. You either need to give it up completely or not, because I do believe it's it can be a spectrum for certain people, not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm glad because I think. Although having a glass of wine and, you know, blowing off some steam, especially with things going on right now, like would make a lot of sense. Um, romantic. Right. I know. Yeah. I I'm just I think I think alcohol is just like a really can it destroys lives and it destroys families and same thing with drugs. And, and so for me, any, the more programs available that are out there that help change the conversation around drinking and introduce it to younger kids as something where sobriety is going to become hip and cool, like, or not drinking is fine. Like I, for me, I'm like, that might, that didn't, wouldn't have worked for me, but like more, more to it. Like I, I love it. Um, so I think it's great. And there are a lot of alternative recovery programs that again, were not a good fit for me, but I'm so happy they're out there. Just Google them and you can find stuff. Yeah. The Heron project I'd suggest too. the Chris Heron project. Very, very, 
Awesome. See, and you're probably far more tapped into stuff right now um, than I am. But um, well, yeah, that's that's great. So I'm just we're just putting that out there. Feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions, if there's anything I can help with. I'm sure Chris would say the same. Um, put my email up. Yeah, we'll put your email up for sure. Um, I'm so thrilled that you said yes to my weird I don't even know how I stalked you on Instagram or something. You know, I, I got to say, I think it's a lot more fun to say yes. And, um, I think in general, um, so if, if you're listening to this and people are out there asking you to do something, it's a lot more fun. I mean, don't, you don't want to over commit yourself, but, right. uh, my best friend, my business partner, he operates in the world of yes. And, and I continue to learn from him. Um, it's a lot more fun than no, because so yeah. it's, when you ask, it's a yes and. It's yes and when are we doing it? Um, and like, let's get the gang back together from Summer Stage and let's just like go run really nilly in Upper Darby yeah. and have a reunion with Tina Fey. And I can finally confront her as to why she cast me as the part of like Chorus <laughs> Tree, which I'm still obviously a little what pissed the about. Hell, you know? I know, right? Um, You're going to well, get podcast, right? You're going to bring her on? Of course, I'll put her put her on my my dream. Le- no, she should be scared of me. She's one person where I was like, no. Um, all right, awesome. I'm gonna put everything up uh, on Chris um, so that you can get uh, in touch with him. Uh, best of luck in your next chapter. Um, and this was just super fun. Thank you for thank you for being a part. Feeling fired up, ready to go out there and maximize your moments? Then help us get the word out. Rate and review the pod so people can find it and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode. There's no time to waste. 